suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Hello and welcome. Yes, we're back again. We're a day early. It's Monday night and we're doing the podcast. The reason is that my wife is turning 60 this week. So we're going away with the kids and I'll be up somewhere near Montville tomorrow night celebrating that. And so we've pushed forward the podcast and here we are. So if you've made it into the chat room to join us, congratulations. We'll do our best to entertain you. I'm Trevor, aka The Iron Fist. With me, as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Joe. G'day, listeners. I hope everyone's well. And Joe the Tech Guy. Evening, all. So, yeah, looks like we might have a problem with Facebook with this live stream. It was coming up with error signals, but we'll see what happens with that. So, on the agenda, look, there's not a, is there a lot happening in politics and news around the world? RoboDebt report came out from the Royal Commission, so we'll talk about that. We've got the USA deciding that it's perfectly fine to send cluster bombs to the Ukraine. Talk about that. NATO wants to expand into Asia because it's perfectly normal for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to be involved in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Mm. Our friend Paul Keating had something to say about that. And Oh, what Australians think of Americans was in a poll. Depending how we go, because those things may not take that long and it might force me to actually start talking about some Indigenous issues and we might end up talking about culture and what culture is and how culture is mixed up in the idea of race. And these are concepts that we need to understand if we're to talk coherently about the whole Debate over the voice and the yes and the no. So I'm fearful that I'm told. Yes. Culture is what yoga has and Australia doesn't. (laughs) Yes. So that's where we're heading on this one. See what rabbit holes we end up in. If you're in the chat room and there's one person there right now, you can make a comment and we'll try and incorporate if we can. All right. Ah, Scott, RoboDebt. A fairly scathing report has come down about politicians and public servants. What was your thoughts about the report? I thought that uh, the winner of it goes to that, uh, I can't even remember which which publication it was, but someone had actually come out and said that uh, if Peter Dutton, if Peter Dutton doesn't get sick of his politics lark, he could go and become a comedian because he was suggesting that it was wrong that Shorten and Albanese were trying to make politics out of the whole thing, Mm. you know, and I think that hit the nail right on the head because, you know, it's got these, it's got their fingerprints all over it. The Tories were completely involved in it. They pushed it and they were behind it. So I think everything that went wrong with it has to be sheeted home to them. Yep. They started it. They were in control of it. It is entirely their responsibility. 
Now, they did lie and that type of thing to try and make out the Labor Party started it, but clearly they didn't. Mm. It's, uh, it was a bloody disgrace, actually, you know. Mm. I cannot believe that the public service has been so thoroughly neutered that they would, that no one actually stuck their hand up and said, Minister, you can't just do this. Mm. You know, because I'm on a very good wicket, but there was six months where I had to claim the dole because I was unemployed. Now, had they have actually done an averaging on my income that I earned in the second six months of that year, mm. then they would have come back and said, well, you've clearly over, you've clearly claimed when you shouldn't be claiming. Mm. Now that is wrong. And it's just one of those things that I cannot believe that no one actually put their hand up and said, minister, you can't do this. But the, sort of people, they... the sort of people who are victims of this were the least equipped to mm -hmm. battle against mm -hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You can just imagine that they were the ones who were like, oh my God, you know, their ability to go through their records and sort things out and deal with the department and have the time to do that. They were the, the least equipped. So see, hey, buggers. if it had actually happened to me, I would have ignored it. And I just would mm. have said, look, if you want to come after and sue me, sue me, because I'll stand up in court and tell you where you're wrong. Mm. That's no problem at all. You know, and I wouldn't have been intimidated, but. I've got a fairly good head on my shoulders and that type of stuff. I would know exactly what to say. You were not a typical Dole recipient. No, I wasn't. Mm. Mm. I got it for that six months when I got tapped on the shoulder up here in Rockhampton. You know, yeah. it's just, but the people that did actually, you know, I cannot believe that they were that intimidated that they took their own lives. Well, they clearly but, did. I mean, it's not. Yeah, I know. I, I think if you weren't in a good space to begin with, and that's why you were receiving government assistance, this could very well be what tipped you over the edge. Oh, exactly. And, and it was all about punishing poor people. It was seeing, be, being seen to be tough mm. whilst not actually caring about the billions of dollars hidden in the Bahamas or wherever it was that Malcolm Turnbull had his dollars. But, but you know, you can just feel that sort of that Christian fingerprint on all this, where if you are poor, then there's this Christian judgment that you're not favoured by God and mm -hmm. that godly people are hardworking, well-organised, and if you're not that, then you're ungodly and, and a slacker. Yeah. And, and, yeah, that was clearly in Morrison's head when he kicked the whole thing off. And mm -hmm. as the whole thing was turning bad, the public servants were cowed to their masters and didn't want to stand up to them. So they were, you know, properly for career advancement reasons, wanting to try and achieve what their political masters wanted rather than what was good and best for the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's one of those um, things, that, you know, I heard on a podcast this morning that I was listening to, I think it was the, I can't remember, it's called the ABC Daily News or whatever it is. There was a, they went into it in depth and they had a soundbite from Morrison and that sort of stuff. And he was beating his chest saying that 80, you know, how many million go out to work every day and that type of thing. They expect that we're going to have a tough cop on the beat over welfare recipients. Hmm. You know, the, the whole language of it was really very sickening, actually. Meanwhile, they throw money at people like Barnaby Joyce for mm -hmm. a non-existent report, Price mm -hmm. Waterhouse Coopers 
and other consultancies for nothing. People uh-huh. running detention centres with Harvey zero Roman. people in there. Harvey, like they'll throw money at the other end mm-hmm. willy-nilly and yet these people, it is disgusting. And, well, will things change? You know, hopefully out of all this, it will depend a little bit on what happens to some of the players in this down the track, whether they end up in jail I, or other I was going to say, I'm glad to see that criminal charges have been recommended. Yes. So hopefully down the track in two or three years' time or something, when a minister is putting pressure on a public servant, the public servant will think, well, I don't want to be, who's this lady in this one who's the main culprit? Campbell. Catherine Campbell. Is, is, I am not going to be another Catherine Campbell, and so no. Um, Hopefully what happens to her is an example that scares a lot of public servants over the next decades into doing the right thing. That's how things will change, I think, change the culture. We'll see. So, yeah, Dutton, you mentioned, was sort of suggesting that Labor was too gleeful in the way it was talking about this issue. And incredibly, James Campbell of News Corp, hard right-wing News Corp guy, basically blasted Dutton for suggesting it which was interesting. And I think there's some elements of News Corp and the right which have given up on Dutton. And I think that's right. Maybe he, he may not survive. Yes. I think they're just doing the sums on the popularity and, and they're thinking, well, there's no point just loyally supporting this guy. Exactly. You know, uh, we'll drop bombs on him when we need to in order to get another liberal leader and his position is fuck <laughs> who are they going to put instead the, the caliber of stuff there is just horrendous who are they going to put no, it's because of the success of the teals and i don't begrudge them their success because you know they did actually take out the moderate wing of the liberal party you know, you had those, you had those moderate held seats and that type of thing that were taken by them. I don't begrudge them that because I thought to myself, they had a very good campaign line when they said, yes, of course you could vote for Josh, but you're going to end up with Barnaby. Mm. You know, that is a very solid line for them to take when they were actually, when they were actually talking to those people that had a moderate voice and they were saying to them, yes, you can vote for Josh, but you're going to end up voting for Barnaby. And that What's is the, wrong with Barnaby? He's Barnaby's an idiot. Christian. He might become leader again. Apparently they're not happy with Little Proud. Yeah, I know they're not chance. happy with Little Proud, but, you know, that, that would be suicide for them to go back to Barnaby Joyce because Barnaby Joyce is an idiot. Well, but an electable idiot. Elect- he, electable you know, in his own electorate, yes. yes. In his own electorate, he's electable, but, you know, mm. he's, he actually said that he takes no responsibility for what happens to the Liberals. But, you know, they were actually mentioning him by name and that type of thing in the, in the campaign. Mm. You know, he, he's a fucking tool. Mm. Well, you know, in a democracy, if people aren't performing, then the voters just vote them out. Mm. Well, assuming that the voters realise that they're not performing yes. and they get snowballed by certain media interests. Yes. 
So I would have thought the Labor Party's got probably at least three or four terms left in them. Because the the Liberals haven't learnt anything. They have just doubled down on their nonsense. You've got Dutton talking about nuclear power. He's refusing to accept that the renewable energy is cheaper than nuclear power. No, no, no. But nuclear power is there for a reason. Because all the time we're talking about nuclear power, we're not talking about renewables. And it allows us to burn coal for a bit longer. Mm. That's why nuclear power is there. It's a distraction. It's perfect. Yeah, I suppose. Anyway, it's just one of those things like, you know, but it, it, it might well be a distraction, but people are actually going to be just, they're just going to be saying, well, no, fuck him. I'm just not interested. So I just think to myself that they're, they're sort of lemming, they're being like lemmings and that sort of stuff. They're all just stepping off into the, into the wild blue yonder and they're not keeping an eye on where they're actually stepping. And they're just going to step into the abyss of their own self-destruction. Mm-hmm. The only thing that'll save them is a massive recession that could be sheeted home to labor. And, you know, if there is a really bad crushing recession, then that might shorten them to only two terms rather than three or four. Well, I suppose so, but mm. no, it's, if people there's start... a little secret here that, you know, mm. governments don't really get that well involved in the economy. Yes, but it's about spinning the line Mm. that they are responsible. So you're right, particularly an Australian government Mm. is is like a little ship tossed around in a big ocean. There's lots of factors at play that they can't control. But most of them are international. Yeah, but certainly you can. Kevin managed in the global recession, didn't he? Yes, that spending stimulus did make a difference. It did make a hell of a difference. Now, I was opposed to it at the time, but, you know, looking back on it, he was right. Mm. You know, he targeted the households. He's, you know, he, what was it? Targeted the households early, wasn't it? Or something like that was the line. Basically put cash in the hands of people who were going to spend it, not save it. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember going to a trade show around that time when people had just got their checks. That was one of the greatest trade shows I've ever been to. People were spending money. Like you wouldn't believe at that. So it certainly boosted that economy. So, yeah. So anyway, we'll see what happens along those lines. Internationally, things are not going well for Ukraine. And the United States. Well, okay. They are holding their own. You know, they haven't done. Our offense has gone nowhere. I know the counteroffensive's gone now. And? But oh, yeah. the, the, they the could ally- be waiting for a... The Allies in the First World War went nowhere. Yeah. yeah. D-Day landing got the first 100 metres and then bogged down for a month. Yeah. And? Hmm. This is, this is well, what happens in wars. Yes. Unfortunately, okay. it takes time. Sorry, I take it back. Blood. I take it back. Things are obviously going well for Ukraine. Swimmingly no, well. Obviously going well and it's for all Ukraine. just going to happen no, for them over the next. They were up against the second world's, the third largest military in the world and everything else. And everyone thought it would be over in two or three days. What are we? 16 months later, they're still fighting. <laughs> According to reports, 
well, America's agreed... From RT.com, yes. ...to supply... America's agreed to supply cluster bombs. Mm. It has, yes. ...to the Ukrainians. But the cluster bombs that were going out of date anyway and that had manufacturing tolerances that were fairly shit and have probably only got worse over time. So they're not yeah. getting the shiny new cluster bombs, they're getting the old ones, which will half of which won't explode and will leave unexploded ordnance all over the, yes. the, 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 the countryside. Until some kid decides to pick it up and play with yeah. it or a farmer runs a tractor over it or something like yes. that. So, my goodness me, what but a poor decision. It'll be on Soviet occupation by then, won't it, won't it Trevor? <laughs> well, that's... It, if they think that, sure, but they don't. They think they're going to win and that they're going to litter their own territory, the Ukrainian territory, with unexploded cluster bombs. Yeah. Yes. What a terrible decision. What a terrible decision. And it just continues. So, But it's um, all right because none of them are signatories to the whatever it is arms convention that limits cluster bombs. Yes, America's not a signatory to that, so they haven't breached an international treaty by supplying the cluster bombs. Presumably mm. Ukraine isn't either. Yeah. Ukraine isn't, the US isn't. Mm. Yeah. There we go. What a mess. See, when creates. you need St. Diana to go and bang some heads together. Mm. Yeah, she was big on the... Uh, she was big on the cluster bombs. Yes. Mm. Right, that's Ukraine. NATO has been talking about setting up a branch office, office in, Tokyo. in Japan. Ooh. And the French, fortunately, have been saying that's not a good idea. And we, the French, are When have this. the French ever gone against something that was suggested by another country? Sometimes their recalcitrance works out well, I think. So, so, yeah, I mean, it is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization designed to point missiles at Russia. Hey, come on, the French are only new members. They don't count. Yeah. And they're talking about creating this shop in Japan. What possible purpose could they have except mischief? Exchange of technologies. Mm. What do you think, Scott? Is it legitimate for NATO to to join up with Japan and other Asian countries? Well, and I, don't form think an it, I don't think it's, I don't think it's legitimate to have these, you know, post-Soviet alliances anymore. Mm. You know, because the it was clearly a it was clearly designed in the forties and that type of thing as a as a countermeasure to the Soviet Union. So now that the Soviet Union no longer exists. Yeah, as a countermeasure to Russian expansionism. Yeah. So, so, so you're saying Soviet there shouldn't be a NATO even in, in Europe? Is that what you're no, saying? No, I don't Scott? think so. Yeah. I don't think, I don't th I think it's outlived its purpose. Okay. Yeah. And having said that though, the, the Russians are clearly expansionary and that type of thing. So I think that it's quite legitimate for the Europeans to guard against that. And so Finland has joined up and Sweden has too. So you're saying yeah. it's legitimate to have a NATO then? Yes, it is now because, you know, uh, you've got the... You've so got... Pr prior to this invasion, it had become 
irrelevant. Yes, it had now it had be become irrelevant. Now, now it's become now it's become relevant again because the Russians clearly can't be trusted. Right. Okay. We've diverted there. Just back yeah, to that. Asia. So, I don't think it's I don't think it's right for them to set up anywhere in Asia though. Because right. well, it depends if they're trying to recruit countries, probably not. Mm. But what what are they doing there is the question. Hmm. Well, well, I would have thought that you'd, if you've got anything about sharing of technology and that type of thing, you could do that very easily over, you know, you just got to fly people and that sort of stuff and have a Skype meeting. And that type of, yeah, exactly. Maybe we could look at what the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, said about the matter. He sounds Scandinavian. Mm, where is he Dutch? Know where he's from. He said, we should not make the same mistake with China and other authoritarian regimes, he said. His comment is seen as drawing a link between the Ukraine and Taiwan. Quote, what is happening in Europe today could happen in Asia tomorrow, he said. So the head of NATO wants to be there because they don't want to make the same mistake with China that they did with Russia, seemingly. Yeah, okay, I can understand that, but don't you think it would have more legitimacy if the if the Chinese were contained by a alliance between the United States, India, someone Australia. local, someone yes, local exactly. in the area, like the Americans? Yeah. Well, the really Americans close, are, you know, just Americans ignoring the, the Pacific, Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I know the Americans aren't local, but they are, they are the, they are now the second superpower in the world and that type of thing. So I think they've got to have some sort of presence. And Japan and the Philippines are both American colonies. Yeah. There we go. It's their back, it's their backyard. It is their backyard. For America. Well, it is America's backyards because they have expanded. Because nowhere is not their backyard. Deepest, darkest Africa is America's backyard as far as America's concerned. Well, America's not really involved in Africa because Africa mm. won't have them there. Mm. Anyway, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, has put his foot down, insisting such geographical expansion would risk shifting the alliance remit too far from its original North Atlantic focus. He's not in favour of it. And he reckons the Japanese authorities have told them that they're not actually attached to it either. So according to Macron, the Japanese don't want, to, don't want to be involved in it. So see where that ends up. I've got no problem with that. I mean, it, it's just one of those things, you know, like I said, if they really want to get involved then they can have meetings and that type of thing that, you know, we've got Albanese's on his way over there now, isn't he over there to uh, NATO yeah, meetings? So, yeah. Why is, Al what, why is Australia involved in a NATO meeting? I don't know. Well, Australia and New Zealand are part of Five Eyes. Mm. You know, five Eyes. Five Eyes, I suppose, would report to NATO via the US. And but, the UK. Um, and the UK, yeah. Just because just in the last few decades, there was never a war that going on that Australia didn't want to get involved in. So, now it seems. Trust, if you want a straight shooter on foreign policy, trust Paul Keating. He came out with a statement because he's seen what's happening with NATO in Japan and Albanese heading over there. And according to Paul Keating, ex-Prime Minister, 
President Macron of France is right to warn NATO away from any expansion into Asia. He says, the Europeans have been fighting each other for the better part of 300 years, including giving the rest of us two world wars. Exporting that malicious poison to Asia would be akin to Asia welcoming the plague upon itself. And of all the people on the international <coughs> stage, the supreme fool amongst them is Jens Stoltenberg, head of NATO. Stoltenberg, by instinct and by policy, is simply an accident on its way to happen. And uh, according to I, Keating... I, I think he's got a bit of a selective memory. Keating has? Yeah. Right. And it's like, you know, Japan didn't invade China or the whole of Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Not Nothing to do with Europe yes. at all. Yes. <laughs> Good point. Well, the Second World War was a global war. It started in Europe, but it ended up yeah. in ended up in the Pacific. Yeah. yeah, but but Japan invaded China in the thirties, early. No, 30s. I know that. That, that yeah. was. I think they got kicked off in the mid thirties, didn't they? Yeah, something mm. like that. Yeah. Before mm. the Second World War happened, anyway. Yeah, committed a few it's atrocities a... along the way. Yeah, yeah. I know the rape of Nian King was in the thirties. Mm. Yeah. And it um, was, was anyway. said at the time in Time magazine that it was it was very hard to get excited about because of the yellow man killing yellow man. Yeah. You know. It's Yeah. Whereas with these Ukrainians, they're white guys like us. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Can't have that. No, 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 they're not. Mm. They're Russians. Yes. Ah. Keating says about Stoltenberg. In February, he was drawing parallels between Russia's assault on Ukraine and China, saying we should not make the same mistake with China. That is, that China should be superintended by the West and strategically circumscribed. Right. Berg, in his jaundiced view, overlooks the fact that China represents 20% of humanity and now possesses the largest economy in the world and has no record of attacking other states, unlike the United States, whose bidding Stoltenberg is happy to do. Stoltenberg conducts himself as an American agent rather than a leader for European security. And Emmanuel Macron is doing the world a service, putting a spike into Stoltenberg's wheel. There's Paul Keating. Doesn't hold back. He's been no. quoted by a number of people internationally who enjoyed that. We talked about Calvary Hospital mm -hmm. last week and how the ACT government... How about the poor Catholics were being... Persecuted. Yes, yet again. Meanwhile, the sisters who actually run the place were really looking to get out and get into a sort of end-of-life hospice, mm. which is what they're suited for rather than running a multidisciplinary hospital. Anyway. Which had to provide, you know, abortion and also reproductive so, services. Yes. So... Crosses attached to the hospital were taken down and the Goulburn Archdiocese Archbishop Christopher Prowse was not happy. And he said, the very first thing a totalitarian government does when it seizes Christian assets, the very first thing they all do, they take down the crucifix. When the religious cage is shaken by a wolf, when the cross is taken down, we realise how important our religion is when it's under attack. And right now, today... Over at the public hospital, today is Sunday. Of all days they picked is the Christian gathering time. They're taking the very big blue cross from outside the public hospital down today. There was a collective wrenching going on, but there was a sense of hope. 
because they realised you can take down our physical crucifixes, but you'll never take away the cross, Jesus's cross, inside my heart. All very dramatic, except the ACT health minister said taking down the cross was entirely the decision of the Calvary Healthcare. We've been very clear about that the whole time. Any decision around those items, how and when they were removed, was entirely the decision of Calvary. And Calvary admitted, <laughs> yeah, it was our decision. We just decided to take them down because we thought we made them as well. Sounds like some masturbation going on there, doesn't it? Oh, that's right. Love to be persecuted, even yes. when you're not. Yes. Yeah, they, they do <laughs> love it, don't they? Martyrbation complex. That's yeah. one from the early days. Yeah. Mm. Okay. That's, maybe that's the last we'll hear of Calvary Hospital and Christians, maybe. We'll see. It's not going to be the last we hear of Christians. No. More polling. This one, there were polls from... Pew Research and from the Lowy Institute and Roman, our listener Roman brought it to my attention that there was an article in Crikey and basically from these polls of particular interest is that Australian scepticism is alive and well. Australians are the only group in the Asian Pacific region that thinks China is now the world's top power. The others thought it was the US and Australia's attitudes to the U.S. have been strongly influenced, not in favour of the U.S., by the Trump era. So we think less of the U.S. and we think China is more powerful when some of our neighbours haven't yet come to that conclusion. I don't know. I looked at some of the results in these polls and some of the stuff was still worrying. Looking at countries that have a positive opinion of the U.S., Australia was one of those, 52% favourable, 47% unfavourable, our views towards the US. One question was asking whether USA interferes in the affairs of other countries. All countries basically thought that was the case. In Australia, 79% of people said, yes, the US interferes in the affairs of other countries. 20% of Australians said, no, they don't. I mean, what rock or cave are these people living under or in if you don't think the US is involved in interfering in the affairs of other countries? But anyway. Well, Murdoch's an American, so obviously. Yes. And, and then the question was that the US contributes to peace and stability around the world, and 61% of Australians think that, and 38% disagree. So huh, that was part of the polling of Pew Research. And the Lowy poll basically showed that people now are thinking, the, in Australia, people are thinking China is more of a threat than a security, than an economic partner. But if, if there is a war involving Taiwan, they don't want Australian troops sent there. So it's the majority of Australians don't. So... So anyway, those are some more polls that came through on Crikey. Nothing startling about that. And where are we at? We're at 8.05 already. 25 minutes left. Goodness me. I'm probably going to have to talk about Indigenous affairs and culture. Racist. <laughs> yeah. Gird your loins, everybody. I've been reading a book. 
Culture, the story of us from cave art to K-pop by Martin Kuchner. Been a good one. And more I think about the Indigenous Affairs, the voice, and it's trying to work out culture and how culture fits into things and how we think about culture. So here's an idea. You could look at culture in two different ways. One, culture belongs to the people born into it and must be defended against outside interference. Culture is a form of property that belongs to the people who live it. That's one way of looking at culture. And I would suggest that's a view of culture that's being encouraged for Australian Indigenous communities. Second way of looking at culture is that culture is made not only from the resources of one community, but from encounters with other cultures. Culture evolves through circulation. And reading this book, where he traces the history of different cultural events throughout human history, it's pretty clear that the second version is what actually happens, that culture is not from one community, it has encounters with other communities, other cultures, and it evolves through circulation. That's what actually happens. And you get rare events where culture is frozen in a kind of a time capsule. And that's when it is, through certain events, frozen out from interaction with other cultures. So have you guys heard of the Chauvet Cave in France? It's one of the... Oh, the oldest extant cave art? Yes. Yeah. So it's one of the oldest examples of cave art. And it exists because tens of thousands of years ago, the entrance to the cave was blocked by a landslide. Mm -hmm. And that stopped people going in. And, and defacing it. Defacing it or... Putting up uh, their own drawings. Their own drawings, or yes, you know, had that cave been open since that time, there's no way the original cave art would have survived the influx of other cultures and the influence of other people. The other example would be, say, Pompeii, with the ashes falling on Pompeii, effectively freezing that culture in place and excavations now allow us to see what it was at that time. And there was another example where the parents of Tutankhamun had basically left the city that they were living in, created a, almost a new religion in a new city. And when they passed away, that city was abandoned and, and covered. And, and it wasn't like there was then a new population in there that, that then adjusted everything. And it sort of remained frozen in time. So, so the sort of examples that we have of cultures that have survived intact, untouched for a long period of time come about because they haven't had contact with other cultures. Because mm. that's what happens. Other cultures come in, build upon, use bits and pieces, destroy and change cultures. They're not, they don't stay fixed. They don't remain the property of a group. So... In his book, this guy says, if we want to talk properly about culture, we need 
a different language from property and ownership because that's not how culture actually works. And I think one of the issues that we have with Indigenous people and their plight and the way we think about things is it appears to me that there is an insistence on maintaining cultural purity and trying to almost freeze in time and take ownership of it for a select group and build a wall around it, if you like. So, Well, if that's true, then they'd eschew all modern civilization. Yes. But they'll yeah. take on bits and pieces. Um, exactly, when it but suits. But to the, to the dismay of the purists, I guess. But I'm guessing even the purists are not animistic. Mm. They're probably... Deep and faithful Christians. Yes, that's the hypocrisy of well, your exactly. right, Yes. So here's one. The more I look at it, the more I think of the Indigenous call for a voice and culture, is, is, there's a lot of similarities with religion. And what if it was a religious group wanting special representation? And what if they were saying, only we Christians know what Christians need? And we need a voice made up solely of Christians because we're the experts on the needs of Christians. That's what happens in the UK. Mm. Many of us would suggest that the best thing for Christians would be to hear from some friendly atheists to cause them to question their religious belief. But you know what would be good for you, Lot? Here's some information that calls into question your, your ideology. Mm. But there's no way that would be accepted in Indigenous culture where people are allowed to say, you know what, there's probably some parts of Indigenous culture that might probably be leading to some of the issues that the Indigenous people are facing. And here's from a study, official Australian study of some sort, I, I got a paragraph from it, so Family structure for Indigenous Australians extends beyond the nuclear family concept commonly seen in non-Indigenous contexts. To encompass extended family and community in a collective system of resource sharing that is a testament to their rich cultural heritage. This traditional practice underscores community resilience and unity, though it does present challenges in balancing resources in the face of income disparity. So basically, Family structure in Indigenous Australians is more than just the nuclear family and what you have is a collective system of resource sharing. Ayan Hersi Ali says the same about Somalis in her book, mm. Yeah, mm. talking about the, the culture shock she felt coming yes. into Western Europe uh, and where historically she would have gone to the tribe to get resources if she was on hard times, he was the government giving her free money. Right. Uh, what, what idiots they were. Right. <laughs> so an article that was speaking about the Canadian experience from this guy, I'll quote from, where he goes, I will not dwell too much in the space of the cruel, cynical and utterly disastrous government decisions that have led to the current state of affairs in Indigenous communities, this Canadian Indigenous communities. But perhaps the single largest enduring difficulty originates in the fact that land on Indigenous reserves is not owned by residents in their capacity as individuals. Rather, it is controlled collectively 
so no person or family can buy, sell, lease or mortgage their property in the normal manner that the rest of us take for granted. This has had a crushing effect on business formation and land improvement and is one of the reasons why the housing stock on reserves degrade so quickly. Since no one owns their house in the normal way, there is little financial incentive to invest in any even basic upkeep activities such as mould eradication. Indigenous people are no less industrious or, and ambitious than anyone else in Canada, but they often must leave their reserve communities to find their fortune. To remain on reserve is in many ways to exist as a serf within a welfare state. So, so the question of how to resolve this difficulty, he says, obviously does not fall to me. It's something that Indigenous communities must determine themselves. It's a wrenching issue because a capitalist-style land ownership system would allow non-Indigenous outsiders to buy these communities out, thus undermining the goal of preserving authentic Indigenous culture. In some cases, both economic and cultural goals can be achieved, but in other communities, especially in remote areas, there will be wrenching choices to be made pitting jobs against culture. And that strikes me as one of the key problems for Indigenous communities is this communal ownership problem. And that makes sense to me. And I can see that that is part of inherited sort of cultural trait. And my concern is, or my thinking is, that the people who would be on The Voice, their business is the Indigenous culture industry. If there is a point where you should say, you know what, time to ditch a couple of cultural features because it's not working in a modern 21st century situation. That might be something that has to be said and I think should be said. But the very people likely to be in the voice are the least likely to admit to that need to abandon parts of a culture because they're in the industry of possessing, protecting, owning, fencing off culture. The, the same has been said in the UK about the Muslim representative groups. Mm who are very entrenched in the status quo. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the government consult with members of the community mm. who say, well, of course, all Muslims don't want gay people in their area. Mm. And the gay Muslims say, well, hang on, you haven't asked us. Mm. But the uh, people in charge are the least likely to be liberal. In, yeah, they, in, they in the want, community. They, they want to defend the status quo because that's what gives them power and authority. Yes. Yes. So that's what I see as one of the problems of, of, of deciding that a purely Indigenous-based voice is going to solve all the problems when I think one of the real major fundamental problems for Indigenous people is something that these people are least likely to address. Their motivations are for the opposite. So, and it would need an outsider, perhaps, to say that. Who will not be allowed to be on The Voice?
Found an old article by Ken Malik just talking about race and culture and and how essentially race has been abandoned as a concept and kind of replaced by culture, which is a backdoor way of of smuggling being racist. In race. <laughs> yes. I can't really you know, like we know that there's no difference between people racially. We know scientifically that there's nothing in the DNA. We know people are people. So we can't rely on a racial difference argument. But what's happened instead is people have gone, well, of course, these people have a different culture and that cultural difference is used in the same way that race is used or used, race used to be used. So in this article, he says, last week, Sandeep and Rena Manda were denied the chance to adopt a child. The Mandas are of Indian Sikh heritage, though both born in Britain, and the only children needing adoption were white. So Indian Sikhs in Britain, not allowed to adopt a white child. That's bloody ridiculous. And it speaks to a broader confusion about the relationship between race and culture, a confusion that afflicts anti-racists as much as it does racists. Few people these days claim that whites and Indians are racially incompatible, but many argue that whites and Indians belong to distinct cultures and possess discrete identities. Many argue too that especially for children, it's important not to undermine their sense of identity or create confusion about their cultural attachments. Has anybody seen Splitting Airs, the Eric Idle film? No. An Eric Ray. Idle film? Yeah. He's, right. he's raised by an Indian family uh, and he claims, proclaims very loudly that he's, a, he's an Indian and right. he has these fantastic Bollywood dream sequences. How long ago was this movie made? Oh, in the 1980s. Right. Yeah. According to Malik, just continuing with this story, it's plausible the council imagines that to be white is to belong to a particular culture and that non-whites belong to the other cultures. A white child can only be brought up by white parents because otherwise he or she would grow up in the wrong culture. I mean, we have that here in Australia. with Indigenous children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, let me just see, talking about the right here. So, traditionally, a race was seen as a group of human beings linked by a set of fundamental characteristics unique to it. That was the traditional view of race. In the post-war world, this concept of race disintegrated. Racial categories were shown to possess little scientific validity. And after the Holocaust, the idea of racial inferiority or superiority became a big no-no. But if old-fashioned racial science was buried, many of the racial thinking, assumptions of racial thinking survived. It's just that humanity could be divided into discrete groups, each of which possessed a set of unique characteristics, shaped an individual's identity. These ideas came to be race recast in the language not of biology but of culture. In short, cultural differences replaced racial differences. And this was done by both the left and the right. So 
Marie Le Pen in France would say on the right wing, we not only have the right, but the duty to defend our national personality and have our right to our difference. So defending the purity of the French culture. And from the left, different minority groups are seen as possessing different cultures, identities, and ways of thinking. And to confront racism and oppression, many argue on the left, requires a defense of each group's distinct identities, which is really just repeating the Marie Le Pen argument. And on both the right and the left, many now view cultures as fixed, bounded entities, each the property only of certain people. Once, culture was seen as providing the tools with which to open up and transform the world. Today, many regard it more as a protective wall to shield its members and to keep out unwanted visitors. There we go. There's some thoughts. Think about when it comes to the Indigenous question and how we think about race and culture. Oive. Yes. Ah, oh, I've got another story here. I wonder if I'll tell the Ray Halpin story. I've told this one before. Ah, oh, I'll tell this one. So that story that I just read from Ken and Malik was on his website. And in the comment section was a comment by a guy called Ray Halpin, who I actually reached out to and him friends on Facebook. It's like sort of six years ago now. Interesting guy. He sort of ended up on the streets in in Ireland, like as a almost as a homeless type guy. And I was saying to him, "Do you need some money?" And he was like, "No, no, I'll be right." And uh, yeah, interesting guy. So, in response to what Ken and Malik wrote, this is in the comments by Ray Halpin, and he said, "I am an unskilled manual labourer living in Dublin, but I spent." the 1990s working in Outback Australia as a field operative in the mining exploration industry. During those years, I came to befriend many Aboriginal Australians and at one stage even considered proposing to one. The Mabo lands rights decision was a watershed moment. From that point on, the political consciousness of many ordinary Aboriginal Australians really flourished. Although at the time, the significance was not grasped by many of the Indigenous friends in Mount Isa. They resented the idea, this is his Aboriginal friends in Mount Isa, resented the idea that Torres Strait Islanders were getting a percentage of the funding set aside by Canberra for ATSIC. Aborigines were the real Indigenous Australians, whereas Islanders were something else. (laughs) I found this sort of rivalry to be depressing because to my excessively idealised way of thinking at the time, it resembled a mild form of the kind of racism pervasive throughout the white Australian community. Aborigines should have been immune from that kind of thing. Given their experiences, they should have known better, but they didn't. They were as stubbornly human as any other group. He goes on, the issue of exactly what it meant to be an Australian Aborigine came, became a frequent topic of discussion around the barbecue. Some of my black friends refused to join the discussion because politics irritated them. Others dismissed the whole idea of Aboriginality and preferred to concentrate on the apparently less controversial idea of common humanity. There was always one, 
usually the one who had an arts degree from the University of Queensland, who pursued a degree of exclusivity that would have impressed the most fastidious phrenologist. He'd demand to be referred to by his tribal designation, even though he often didn't know it, and accuse his cousins of being yellow rather than black because some of their distant ancestors turned out to be Afghan cameleers. When their cousins retaliated, pointing to the extraordinary number of white fellas in their accuser's pedigree, he'd blanch and say he was proud of all of his ancestors, but you could tell he wasn't. As far as I could tell, the absurdities of black identity were as comical and as potentially dangerous and tragic and venal, venal as those infecting the white identity. I met Australian Aborigines who adopted, adopted an identity for purely cynical reasons because there was funding to be had from it and steady work and academic kudos and compensation from mining companies. I met Aboriginal Australians who were purists of the most intimidating kind who condemned all whites as genocidal murderers and assumed a right to kill them wherever and whenever and felt justified in doing so. These experiences and many more like them forced me to reflect long and hard on the pros and cons of identity and to view with growing detestation the emergence of an illiberal left-wing variety of identity politics that in effect differed very little from its right-wing counterpart. There we go. Thoughts on Indigenous issues. All will be re-examined in a bumper Indigenous episode. That will Did appear you at some point. see Lydia Thorpe's comments? I, I saw, this is 60 Minutes. Oh, I don't know. I just saw some headlines. Which comment was that, Joe? Well, specifically, it's okay to be black and vote no, and no, it doesn't make us racist. Mm. I I refuse to be lumped into the same group. You know, there are different reasons for voting no, and you don't have to be a racist to vote no, was effectively what she was saying. She classed herself as a progressive no. Mm. Is how she described it, as opposed to a racist no. Yes. And I would describe the theories that I'm trying to espouse as a rationalist no. So you can have different reasons for... I, I think so. No. Yes. But I think we are just going to see a tarring of a whole swathe of the country as racists, uneducated bigots. Yes, that's what we're going to see. This and, is going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've been keeping, uh, clipping all sorts of stuff from social media from different people who I normally agree with on the left, and they're just going to town when they talk about the racists who are contemplating the no vote. Yeah. Yeah, one of the Facebook pages I follow was, uh, if you're voting for... No, then you know, it's as good as a vote for Dutton. Yes. Uh, and I just put up, what was it, your your logical fallacy is? Mm. Black and white thinking. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it's, these are not two sides of the same coin. Mm. You, you can vote no and not be for Mr. Dutton. Yes. So it's a complicated topic because it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's these issues of culture and, and there's almost a religious reverence for the purity of the culture being maintained and 
Well, welcome is, to country has just become. Sorry, what's what's? Yeah, it is welcome to country has become is, the Lord's Prayer over. It has yes, and a lot of atheist rationalists who would normally object to overtly yes. religious happenings are quite happy to wave through indigenous, indigenous oh, or even spiritual. embrace it. Yes, indeed. And it's complicated because it is a mixture of feeling sorry for what has happened to plight of modern-day Indigenous people who are suffering, mixed in with a, a, a feeling of compensation for stolen land of what happened to Indigenous people you know, 250 years ago, and it's it's that mixture of those two things that justifies a position that would otherwise be unjustifiable, and it's just illogical at the end of the day. So we'll get to all that, and we'll upset a lot of people. Sorry about that. It's just the way it is. <laughs> Been a bumper episode to come. My notes are just getting longer and longer on this. Yeah. Which is fine. You'll have to send them to me well in advance because I've got to get across it. But yeah. I'm still leaning towards a yes vote just to protect it from the Tories more than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, but I understand where you're coming from. You know, it's one of those things. It's not as easy as they are trying to make out. I still don't understand why Albanese wants it as badly as he does. I mean, I would have thought that he could actually take a look at the polls and that sort of stuff and actually sit the people down and say to them, if we put this up now, there's every likelihood we're going to lose. So I don't think it's a good idea for us to go ahead with it now. I don't think he's a particularly deep thinker. I think he Out just... Is, you know? No, he just thinks there's a lot of disadvantaged Indigenous people living in terrible circumstances and land was stolen and the grievance of that has been transferred through the generations to present-day Indigenous people. And that's the way a lot of people on the left think, and that's the thinking that he would adopt without questioning whether that's actually logically appropriate or not. So, hmm. yeah. Have we heard anything from Keating over it? He would be in favour of it, I would have thought, because I don't know. his speech, the Redfern speech and all that, I would have thought. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Do you know, Scott, we actually spoke about this way back in episode three. Really? Yes. Way back then, Noel Pearson. The voice? Yes, because in episode three, we referred to an article where Noel Pearson was proposing that he wanted a voice in Parliament way back then, eight years ago. So, yeah, as I was... Bloody hell, that was... Working my way through the notes and finding every reference we've made to Indigenous matters as part of the 10-hour episode that will appear at some stage. Yeah. All right, that's enough. I've got to get ready for a 60th birthday gathering. I hope you enjoyed that one. And we'll be with you next week. Bye for now. And it's a good night from me. And it's a good night from him. Good night. <laughs>